0: time when I come to the end of a series, it's uh, kind of a little relief. Uh, I, I can tend to be a person who looks to the next thing uh, too often. and Maybe some of you are like that as well. And, and a lot of times during a series, I get towards the end. It's like, okay, let's get to the next thing. But that hasn't been the case with this. I'm going to miss working through Revelation. I, I hope that you're the same and not, no, we've been done Weeks ago, we were ready for you to move on. But I'm enjoying this, working through uh, the first three chapters of Revelation. I think the reason why is because throughout the the perception of Revelation, there is so much fear, there's so much uncertainty, there's so much misconception that surrounds this letter. And, And what I love to do is really help us to center our focus... Around the context of the letter. Help us to understand what what it's actually trying to say. And I I hope that throughout this series you've started to get a better grasp of what Revelation actually is. Uh, Of what John, through the dictation of Jesus, is trying to get hammered home to the seven churches throughout Asia Minor. But throughout this series I've had some people ask the question, why have we stopped at chapter 3? Why have we only worked through the first three chapters and not taken the entirety of the book? I wanted to set the proper context. And my hope is that over time, we're going to work through the rest of this letter, but I think there's something that happens somewhere between Revelation chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 4 in people's minds. Because as you open up your Bible, if you're one of those that has the, the headings for each section in your Bible, you can easily see... That in Revelation 1, 2, and 3, this is a specific message to specific churches. Each section probably starts out that way. So as we look at Revelation chapter 3, 14 through 22 this morning, uh, there's a very good chance that your Bible says, to the church in Laodicea. And so in your mind, you can easily grasp that this is a real letter to real people. But something happens between Revelation chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 4 where, where things start to get a little crazy. You start to see all of these different images and start to see this symbolism and you start to think that maybe this is something entirely different, Uh, that maybe the first three chapters were actually written to specific people, but now Revelation chapter 4 through 22, that's that's a totally different animal. And so I wanted to take the first three chapters so that you would actually see the proper context of this letter. We said throughout this series that this is a real letter to real people Facing real circumstances. That does not change beginning in chapter 4. This is still a real letter to real people. And so I want us to center our focus around the fact that what Revelation seeks to reveal is not a timeline, not a series of events, but the one that is standing throughout all of them. That's what you, in 2023 in Clay County, Illinois, and those in Asia Minor in 96 A.D. needed to grasp that regardless of what happens in our future, Christ is going to be standing. He's going to be victorious at the end. So we're going to finish up this series this morning. And people are always asking, okay, what's, what's next? Uh, starting next week, we're going to work through uh, the next two weeks, ten verses, in Luke chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 46 down to verse 56, it's probably titled in your Bible, Mary's Song. As she kind of starts to lay out what the coming Messiah looks like and how it fulfills God's promises. And that's going to lead us up to Christmas Eve. But before we get to that, we're going to hit one last church uh, in this series that we've called Postcards from Patmos. So again, if you've got your Bibles, Revelation chapter 3. And we're going to work through verses 14 down to the end of the chapter this morning. So we're going to jump right in. Here's what you need to know geographically. We have now moved about 60 miles southeast of Philadelphia as we've completed this mail route. And we land in Laodicea. So here's what Jesus has for the church in Laodicea. Verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen. The faithful and true witness, and the ruler of God's creation. Again, it feels like in every verse, you could take multiple weeks to lay out what is actually being packed into this. Because Jesus is making an extreme statement about himself. And the first thing he says is this, to the church in Laodicea, you need to understand this about Jesus. He is the, not a, the, amen, amen. We often use this word, obviously, at the end of our prayers, but we often lose the actual meaning of what it is. It's not just an ending, a way to transition. When we use the term amen, it is a certainty. It's kind of this final stamp on whatever message is being said as though we understand that Jesus is who he says he is and God's going to do what he said he's going to do and so as we pray we say amen because we believe in the one we're praying to and that he's going to accomplish what he said he's going to accomplish and so Jesus is telling the church in Laodicea I am the amen there is a certainty and that who you've heard I am it's true that the words that the Father has spoken to me throughout the Old Testament of the one who is to come, and now that I'm here and I've lived and I've died and I've resurrected, I am who I said I am. Certainty. Absolute certainty. Then he moves to the faithful. And true witness. Before we get to that, let, let's let's do this. I want to really drive home this amen point. So I want to show you a moment in Second Corinthians, where Paul kind of expands on what this is and, and who Jesus is. He's writing to the church in Corinth in chapter one, verse 18. Here's how he starts. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, meaning some of the things that have been said about him are true, and some of the things, ah, he hasn't fulfilled those. But in him, it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us, to the glory of God, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So the question is, as it relates to the churches in Revelation, is this, what do the churches that are being persecuted need to hold on to to persevere? And now on the other side of the coin, what do the churches that have neglected their faith, that are in need of correction or in need of rebuke, what do they need to be warned of? This, that Jesus is the amen. That who he said he is, that what he said he will do, it is going to happen. There's absolute trustworthiness in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And here's how this affects you. That he has told us that the reason he came was because you and I have fallen short of the perfection standard of God. We have broken that bond with our sin in need of repair. But you and I are in no capabilities to bridge this gap ourselves. So what are we to do? In his mercy and in his goodness, he has sent his son and he said, in him is the sacrifice that is needed to bring you back into a right relationship with the father. And so the point of that for believers is this. If you put your trust in him, there is a certainty in that what he has said he's accomplished, he's accomplished. So there's no more wavering in us of, man, I hope Jesus is actually enough for me. There's a certainty in that. He is enough for you. So the churches that are persecuted, what do you need to hold on to to persevere? That Christ is enough. To the churches that have wondered, to the churches that have have discarded their faith, what do they need to be reassured of? That Christ is enough, so cling to him, come back to him. Jesus is the Amen. And then John continues through Jesus. He says, He is the faithful and true witness, a completely trustworthy and perfectly accurate witness to who God is. And then he ends with this. He says, The ruler of God's creation. There, there's some geographical context that comes into play in, in this point in the introduction the city of laodicea was located with, with two other sister cities right around it so you've got the city of colossae which is where paul has written colossians 2 uh, you've got not colossians 2 colossians sent that to them uh, He sent colossians or coloss colosse the letter of colossians and then you've got hierapolis that is right there as well so these three cities colossae laodicea and hierapolis are all together And what we know from Paul's writing to the church in Colossae is that there is this heresy that has started to impact the church. And because these churches are so close, what we can figure out is these these ideas have probably spread among all three of the churches. And this heresy that has become more and more prevalent in the church in Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis is that Jesus is a created being. Here's why this is a problem. If Jesus is a created being, you can begin to see how this leads to a diminished view in our minds of who Jesus is. Because for the church at Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis, they look at Jesus, and if he's a created being and and I'm a created being, then there's really no difference between us. And if there's no difference between us, then he's really not worthy to be worshipped. He's certainly not worthy to be made Lord of my life. He's just another good person a good teacher and so Paul in Colossians chapter one corrects this he says no 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 he was there at the beginning he is the creator and the point of that for for the church in Laodicea and Colossae and is, and for us is you're not like him I'm not like him he's the perfection." The embodiment of the attributes of God in the flesh. I don't know about you, but I look at myself and I recognize, okay, very clearly there's a difference between Jesus Christ and me. And you should as well. And so Paul is, is trying to correct this in Colossae. Now John, through Jesus, is trying to correct this in Laodicea as well, he is the second person of the Trinity, present at creation, because he is the creator. And as the creator, he is the ruler over his creation. And so John tries to make this known. Now what you're going to see through the rest of this section is a ton of cultural context you're going to see a lot of attributes of the city of Laodicea interwoven in these last seven verses. And the point of that is for for Jesus to speak to things that they would recognize, but, but move it to not just the physical, but the spiritual side of things. So let's jump in to verse 15. Jesus says what he always does, and this is either a good thing, or this is a scary thing. When he says, I know your deeds. That you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. (laughs) This would have been something uh, that would have caused the church in Laodicea to sit up and take notice. This is a part of their story. Because as I mentioned before, Laodicea was centered between Colossae and Hierapolis. Colossae was known for having cold springs, this fresh, cold water that would spring up naturally from the ground. And that was their source of drinking water, was the source of everything that they did. And then on the other side of Laodicea, you've got Hierapolis. Hierapolis was known for its hot springs. And so hot water just naturally came up from the ground. Laodicea has neither one or the other. And so as a city without its own water supply, they had to pipe it in from these two places. And what they would find is that as the water was piped from from Colossae, the cold water, by the time it traveled to some nine miles down to Laodicea, it started to become warmed up. started to become lukewarm. And on the other side, as the water was piped in from Hierapolis, as it made its way down to Laodicea, they would find that it would, it would lose a lot of the temperature along the way. And when it came to Laodicea, it was also lukewarm. I've heard the teaching a lot that Jesus uses this hot and cold analogy as a way to say, I, I wish you were either all in in your relationship with me, or I wish you were all the way out. And and there's certain elements of that, but, but I think what he's doing is actually using the cultural context to communicate a bigger message, one that I think you and I should resonate with as well. So let's jump to verse 16, then we'll tie this all together. He says, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Maybe your version of the Bible says, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. And so, again, I've heard it taught that Jesus uses this hot or cold example to say, hey, you, you either need to be all in in this or you need to be all, in, all out. And there's certainly some elements of that. But I think as we look at the cultural context, here's what we see. Is that the water from Colossae, as it was cold, was useful for something. And the water that came from Hierapolis, the hot water, was useful for something. But by the time it came to Laodicea and both were lukewarm, it was good for nothing. Those of you who are coffee drinkers, I think you'll understand this. I've told you before, I am a self-admitted coffee snob. And I do judge people in the way that they drink coffee. I'm not ashamed of that. I've told you that before. I drink my coffee the way I believe God intended it. Black, no cream or sugar, and hot. I think that's the only way to do it for me. But I know there are some of you who like to fancy it up a little bit. And you drink the, the iced coffee with the sugar and the cream and, and a tiny splash of coffee so you can say it's a coffee drink, but we all know it's actually not. But you, you I, I, don't, I don't dislike you for that. I, I, I don't understand you. I don't judge you or condemn you for it. But I know there's, there's different things. But what I think both groups can agree on is that there is a moment that happens whether you are a hot black cup of coffee type person or a iced coffee type person. There is a moment that happens somewhere along the lines where in one sip that is drinkable because it's either warm enough or it's cold enough, and in the next sip, something happens and it becomes absolutely disgusting. If you're a hot coffee drinker, you know you know the temperature. We we can't quantify it, but you know what it feels like. There is a moment where you know in your mind that yep, yeah, this is the last sip, because after this, it's disgusting. Right? You, you understand this. This is what Jesus is trying to say to the church in Laodicea. Like, hot water is good for something. Cold water is good for something. But yet lukewarm water, it's worth nothing. And this is the spiritual state that the church in Laodicea has, has come to. They're not, they're not useful in either regard. It's an indication that their faith has simply become a piece of their life. One of the things that I hear a lot, and, and I understand where it comes from, but I think it's misguided. Is when someone says, or, or types, or whatever, it, whatever medium they use to share that, uh, when they say that, that Jesus is number one in my life, as though I've got this list, this hierarchical, hierarchical list of things, and Jesus is at the top of that, I, I, think, I think it's misguided. Because what Jesus is trying to get drilled into the church in Laodicea's head is that Jesus is not just a piece of your life. He is your life. If Jesus is who he says he is, if he's done what he said he's done, if he saved you and I by our trust in him because of his sacrifice, then he's not a piece of our life. He's everything, or he's nothing. And so when we put these things in a list, what I often see from it playing out in my own life is that that is an open invitation for those things to get out of order. And so we don't list under things under Jesus. We order everything around him. So Jesus is not just the top of your list, he's your very life. He's worth far more than sitting at the top of a long list of things that you love or idolize. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He is your salvation. He is worthy of far more than you just slotting him somewhere in on this list. He is worthy of being everything to us. And the question is, is that us? Or have we taken the posture of, yeah, he he fits in nicely here. So when I come in on Sundays, yes, he is number one. but then I live my life and he slowly and steadily drops down. You and I as believers in Christ are are called not just to add him to our lives, but to make him our lives. Why? Because he's given us life. And in return as our worship, we we center everything around him. So Jesus is trying to shake the Laodicean church awake. You've You've served me, you've loved me in name only. You've claimed to be a believer in Christ because it just looks good in the Laodicean culture. You've worn it as a badge but not lived it out as your life. So you need to understand who the Laodicean people were to grasp the message that Jesus is trying to get across to them. Laodicea was located at the center of of three major highways of the day. And because people would come from far and wide to Laodicea, what it became known as was a financial and banking institution. The place where people spend their money, that's where the banks and finance center seemed to pop up, and Laodicea was that for this region. It was a city that over the years had acquired a ton, a ton of wealth, And because of that, it's why Jesus says what he does in verse 17. He says, you say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, that you're pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus says, you've got this perception of yourself that because you've been materially blessed that you've somehow now elevated yourselves to be this this model church in fact the city of Laodicea itself says we don't need anything from anybody we are totally self-sufficient one of the examples from Laodicea's history was back about 30 plus years before the writing of this letter Sixty AD, an earthquake absolutely wipes out the region, wipes out the entire city of Laodicea. And because they were under the Roman Empire, Rome offered to come help rebuild the city. And they politely declined. They said, No, we we've got plenty. We don't need your money. We'll we'll build ourselves. This was a financially wealthy city, but Jesus says, you've got these physical things. You've got physical financial blessing, and yet the spiritual blessings are, are far away from you. That in your mind, you think we're doing something well because we are self-sufficient, and yet the reality is, spiritually speaking, you're a wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And so in contrast to this, Jesus says, To the city that thinks they've got everything, they need nothing, and now this has infiltrated the church. He says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Once again, he is speaking to the the language of the Laodicean people. They would have been well familiar with the message that Jesus is trying to speak to them. So he says this. He says, you've got physical gold. You've got wealth. You're arrogant among the other cities around you because you feel like you need nothing physically. And while that may be true, the reality is is you are bankrupt spiritually. And so he says, I counsel you to buy gold refined in the fire. And what he means is this. I I counsel you, I encourage you, I warn you to hold on to the things that will last. To find your spiritual gold, not in the things of this world, but in me. And then he moves on and he says, you need to get white clothes To wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness another another contextual thing that would have spoken to these people very very loudly laodicea was known for having a a certain type of sheep that produced black wool it was different from everywhere else around and you could often see a person from laodicea coming by what they would wear They wouldn't wear the normal dyed clothing. They would wear black. And so from far away you could see, yeah, that's that's a Laodicean. So we've got we've got all the gold we need. We've got our own unique clothing. Jesus says, listen, you've got nothing in the things that matter. Spiritually speaking, you are poor and naked. Then he moves on to the next thing. He says, Man, you're blind. Laodicea was known as a medical hub. One of the things that they had perfected was was really dealing with issues of the eye. Because of the natural resources that were around the city, they had produced an eye salve that they found would cure all kinds of different eye diseases and disorders. So people from all around the known world would come to Laodicea in, in hopes of being healed by this famous eye salve. And not only that, they were the first city that had actually undertaken a cataract procedure. Uh, this is a city that was absolutely advanced medically for its time. This was a city that physically speaking had helped a ton of people to see again. And yet Jesus speaks to the church and he says, you've done all of these things physically and yet spiritually speaking, you are as blind as anyone else. The point of all of this is probably what you and I need to be aware of as well. The point of Jesus saying what he does here As to the Laodicean church, you have put your security in insecure things. As though somehow you are banking on the physical blessing of the city, the industry of the city, the the medical breakthroughs of the city. You've, You've taken all those and for some reason you've expected them to provide you with hope. And the reality is, is spiritually speaking, you are bankrupt, you are naked, you are poor, you are blind. Harsh words from the amen. So I guess kind of the introspective moment of this sermon is is this. Because by and large, if, if Jesus were to speak a message... To the church in America today, I I think it could be this. Because let's be honest, what do what do you need? What do you need, physically? The vast majority of us, the answer is nothing. Even those who, by American standards, may have less, your basic needs, they're met. And the question is, for us, have we taken the same posture as the church in Laodicea? I can, I can provide for myself. I have everything I could ever want. It, you see this on display, especially parents. When you start to think, what should I give my kids for Christmas? Or what should I buy my family members for Christmas? If you're at our house, the conversation is, what, they don't need anything. Like They've got everything that they need. This is us. And the point is this. If you put your security, not, not in the physical security, if you put your eternal hope in just what you have, you're going to find that you're in the same boat as the church in Laodicea. You've got nothing. You, we, we think our stuff impresses the king of kings and the lord of lords? Think our physical self sufficiency moves the needle an inch with the one who is the ruler of creation? He's not interested in that. He wants your heart. He wants your surrender. So the message to the church in Laodicea, it probably should be the same as the church in Louisville. Wake up! If you think you're somebody but what you have physically and you're trying to transfer that over to your spiritual health, you got nothing. And you're going to find that these things will not bring you life. They won't bring you life now. You're not you're not fulfilled. Yeah, you're rich, but you you want. And if we take the same posture spiritually, Jesus has said, you got nothing. Because, what has he told us time and time again? There is no salvation apart from me. And, and gosh, guys, I, and I'm, I want you to, to know I'm including myself in this. Like, we approach our life as though if we just acquire more, somehow God is going to say, you know what? You were successful, you, you had a lot of stuff. Get on in here. Come on. The message throughout all of church history to all of humanity is this. There is no life outside of Christ. And yet some of us are trying to to acquire that. You can't. And the point of this is, is for Jesus to tell the Laodicean church, it would be better for you to have nothing and to know your need for Christ than to have everything and assume you're okay. And this is the spiritual state of the church. So listen, what, what do we need to what do we need to revive in us? What what do we need to what do we need to change? What do we need to ask for repentance for? Because I know this is us. And we hear this message on, on a Sunday morning, and, and it all sounds good, and we may feel convicted for a moment, and then you're gonna go back out into a world that, that the Laodicean church would have too and said, actually, it's all about what you can attain. It's about what you have. You don't have a need for Christ because look at what all you built for yourself. And it's a kingdom built on sand. The reason Jesus says what he does to the church in Laodicea is, is not because he hates them. In fact, what I, would, what I would put before you is that this is an act So much grace and mercy, and we get evidence of that in what he says in verse 19. We're gonna have to speed things up a little bit here. He says, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Why is Jesus calling the church in Laodicea to come back to him? Because he loves them. He doesn't want them to perish with their things. He doesn't want them to die with their pride. He wants them to come to him and live. This is the same invitation that he's given to you and I. Come to me and live. Why? Because he loves us. And those he loves, he rebukes and he disciplines. And the response of us is to turn to him and repent. He says in verse 20, here I am. I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So, so it's, it plays off of what Jesus has said at the beginning. He, he's the amen. He's the one who, in all of God's promises, finds their fulfillment. He's the true and faithful witness, the, the one who speaks with certainty of who God is. And he's the ruler of creation. And yet, in all of that power and majesty and authority that he has, what he invites you and I to is an intimate personal relationship. He ends this letter, our section of this letter, by saying this in verse 21 and 22. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Here's the key. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on the throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As he ends this moment in Revelation... He's he's communicating to a church that that feels like they're victorious in all of the worldly standards. We're we're safe, we've got wealth and security. People come to us for help. We don't need to to ask for it. All self sufficient. He says this to the church. And all of that self sufficiency apart from Christ will lead to eternal death. He tells them to, to the one who is victorious, I'm, You're going to sit with me on the throne. Why? Because I was victorious over sin and death. I lived the perfect life. You couldn't. I died the death that you deserved, but showed that I was fully God by overcoming death, rising from the dead three days later, and I'm coming again to establish my kingdom here, to make all things new, and those who have trusted in him will rule with him. The one who is faithful and true attests to this. As we end this series, I think this ought to do something for all of us. I think believer and unbeliever alike. My hope is that it's not through my feeble attempts to preach. It's through the Holy Spirit going before us. But I think through the proclamation of his word, it ought to shake us awake to the reality of who Jesus is, of, of what he's done, and what he's coming back to do. The victory has been won. Not from you, for you the question is is, will you trust him in that? Will you lay aside wh- whatever apart from him you feel like has, has bought your safety and security and, and realize that if that is where your hope is, that you're like the church in Laodicea, blind, naked, pitiful, poor. And bound for destruction this is this is this is what's at stake this is why we proclaim the gospel because we recognize that life or death hangs in the balance and what I were would guess is that there is something in your soul that recognizes the magnitude of this so for unbeliever the call is to repent to trust in him because man, building up your own kingdom is it It's not going to end well. But for believers, the point of all of this is is that you understand who Jesus is, what he's done, and what's available. So the reality is this. As you leave today and, and go back into your world, there are people who are waiting to hear the gospel message from you. All of you. This no one that is a believer in Christ gets to remove themselves from this mission that Christ has given us. There are people that God has divinely put into his providence for you to share the gospel with. The question is, will you go? What you should see through these first three chapters of Revelation is that this is the place where victory is found. It is only found through Christ. And there are people dying apart from this message that, that are waiting on you to share the gospel. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, I pray that this would be us. Lord that that you would shake us awake that you would shake me awake to recognize the hope that's found in Christ God I I know I know my heart I know the things I say the things I think the things I do Lord in in moments of clarity I recognize that what your word says is true I know I don't measure up to your standard I know I'm deserving of death God through all of that how can I be anything but grateful for the fact that through your son's perfect life through his death, burial, and resurrection and is waiting to come again. That, that's where my salvation has come from. So Father, you are worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our praise. You're, you're worthy of our obedience. So Father, I pray that the words that you've given to the seven churches, I pray that those continue to stir in our minds. Uh, that you remind us to the churches that have clung to you, hold on. When trouble comes, when persecution comes, you are the firm foundation. And to those who have failed to see their need for you, or have claimed to be a follower of Christ in in name only, but it makes no impact on their lives, would, would you shake us awake by the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you convict us where we need convicted? Would you call us to repentance and continue to transform us? Father, we as a church, we as individuals are fully and completely dependent on you. And so Father, we pray that you would work among us. Lord, make us a church that you say well done to. We ask that in your name.